I'm Nigel from Pelagic Publishing, and I'm delighted to be here today with Neil Middleton and Stuart Newson, two of the authors of the newly released book, Sound Identification of Terrestrial Mammals of Britain and Ireland. And so I start just by asking Neil and Stuart to just tell us very briefly about themselves and their backgrounds, and then I'll ask them some questions about the book. Right, okay, I'll kick off then. I'm Neil Middleton. I own and run Batability Courses and Tuition. And uh, I'm I'm Stuart Neeson. I work at the BTO, so the British Trust for Ornithology. Uh, I guess the main part of my work has been on birds, but I have a big interest in acoustics and particularly particularly bats. But through bats, I became interested in other things. So uh, there's a lovely forward by Professor Robin McDonald, and um, one of his comments is that you are the three authors, uh, Huma Pierce being the third author, three of the keenest observers. Of, of mammals and mammal sounds. And I think what stands out for me in the book is that um, sort of obsessive observation and learning of sound and thinking about how to use sound. And so what would you say were your main aims when you start thinking about putting together a book, uh, a grand undertaking? What were your main aims for the book? And you know, what do you think people should take away from it as a, briefly as a summary? Yeah, I think I think if you asked each of us, including Huma, who's not here today, um, they'd probably have slightly different take on that. I think for myself, the main aim was about um, helping people to develop themselves, about finding out how sound identification for this group of uh, mammals could be beneficial in terms of. Uh, things like distribution, presence, absence, and then be taking it beyond where the book goes um, in some respects, for example, uh, in a behavioural context. So for me, it was a lot to do with people development. Um, I think, Stuart, you've probably got that in the back of your mind, but I know you're coming at it from a different angle. Do you want to explain a bit more how you would see it here? Yeah, I guess... I guess one of my big motivations was actually to try and improve my own understanding and have a good excuse for doing it. And having to input to a book like this, you have to you have to spend a lot of time. And it was a it was a good excuse to kind of try and improve my understanding of small mammals, which I felt I kind of knew fairly well, but being able to have the time to think about it was really good. But having the audible mammals as well, which I really my knowledge was, I felt, was very poor actually at the beginning. Uh, I think that was re- that was a big motivation for me. But I th- but I think again, I I think there's nowhere in the world really where people are using um, acoustics to try and identify small mammals in particular, which was my particular interest. And I kind of think there's a really big opportunity, particularly people putting out bat detectors. You record small mammals as bycatch really commonly. And for me, there's a real opportunity there to identify to identify them when they're in the rec- in recordings anyway. Um, and I think that's a big motivation for me because I also build classifiers to identify bats and other species, including small mammals now, to try and identify them automatically. That that's that's kind of one kind of thing which really why I'm interested in 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 this kind of whole area, the kind of opportunities that acoustics can provide. I also think, Stuart, I think you would agree as well. Um, there are many reasons why 
we shouldn't have done this book. And I think one of the big reasons was nobody had ever really attempted anything like this before. And it was going to be darn difficult. Yeah. And I think the fact that the three of us have demonstrated to ourselves how difficult it was to actually try and acquire all of that information and put it all in a single place. We're kind of hoping that um, when people open the book, listen to the examples, etc., for the first time, we're not pretending this is the be-all and the end-all and this is the end of the subject, but it is a lot about trying to just engage a lot more enthusiasm and Myself and Stuart, we did talk quite a lot about in the bird world, we're so accustomed as birders, you know, bird watchers, ornithologists, using sound as a, an identification tool and also an interpretation of behaviour tool. Um, why has nobody done it for mammals? Stuart, do you want to add more to what I've said there? Yeah, I think thinking about it, um, I guess for small mammals, the call rate is quite low. Mm. Um so that's that's one problem. And then if you're recording, putting out equipment in the field, actually knowing that these kind of rare sounds that are being produced are actually produced by the thing you think it might be. And yeah, it's kind of tricky. And that's why our, our approach was to, on the whole work with captive individuals, wasn't it? To try and collect a lot, a lot of recordings where we could be absolutely sure what, that those calls were definitely produced by that thing you've got in a terrarium or that that kind of captive individual and that was really important and what you're trying to do is is try and get as many recordings as possible to really understand what what can a species do in terms of the whole range of calls it can produces and um you kind of feel you get there and then you get another individual and it does something completely different do you, i mean do you feel that you're kind of I guess more deeply entering into the 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 world of the the study species because you're you you're you're I guess in some of the many of the calls are going to be social many of the calls are not you know they're not in response to us you're you're delving into the life of the animal and a whole realm of sensory um, information that we're we were previously sort of not really paying as much attention to. I think I think it's been overlooked. I don't know. I don't know if you want to add to that. I don't. I don't think people have kind of realised that, well, certainly small mammals, at least, that they uh, and bat workers. I'm sure most of them just haven't appreciated that small mammals rec are recorded and often within their recordings. It was a, kind of eye, eye opener for me when I started. I know. I'm sure you've got some thoughts on it, Neil, as well. Yeah, I think I would see that very much the same way. And from my own personal perspective, um, I remember doing this, that, a bat book, which mm. a lot of the information in that and also s stuff that uh, Stuart's been involved with, a lot of that today just seems so much like common sense. Mm. It's like we've known it for decades. But, but when I was doing that book, the couple of years prior to it being published, and I put the detectors into the various small mammal uh, exhibits that I was using. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, I was uh, excited. On the other hand, I was totally shocked by some of the stuff that was being recorded that 
as a fairly experienced bat acoustics person, I had no idea would have actually been potentially out there in the acoustic environment. Um, I think for the audible stuff, stuff like uh, badgers and foxes and deer calls and stuff like this, uh, this stuff has been written about and people in the know that know the difference between a fallow deer and a seeker deer audibly for argument's sake. That's been around for a long time. But there hasn't really been a, to my mind, a side-by-side, all-encompassing learning platform where there's examples of a whole range of different things in one place that a beginner that doesn't have access to academic material, for example, could uh, grasp onto. Stuart, is that kind of adding more to what you said? Or can I, yeah. Um... yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, some some of these species I just didn't didn't appreciate before I was working on the book, the range of calls, but things like Chinese water deer, yeah. um, they, they just produce a whole range of clicking and squeaking and really, really bizarre, really bizarre sounds. Um, uh, and before I tried to get recordings, I was thinking it's going to be so difficult. They've got really short rutting period. Um, they have to be kind of chasing each other to produce these sounds. How am I ever going to get recordings? And, I think I think I was just really lucky to get some really good recordings for that, and for things like shrews, um, like common and pygmy shrew, really common species. Getting recordings of those, that the sounds were just completely different, and because no one's kind of looked at it before, you think why why hasn't anyone looked at it? But from a acoustic point of view, it it was like ama- amazing to kind of hear them and know they're completely different. There's a bit of overlap, isn't there? Kind of some calls which are a bit similar, but on the whole, they they just sound really different. And more more we kind of looked at other species of shrew, we found the calls were again different. And, and I think the challenge, if we take the shoes for example, Stuart, the challenge there is that quite a lot that was written in the academic world about sounds that shoes make was done. Oh, I can't remember, but it was done well before. Uh, Things like full spectrum recording was a thing, and and these specialist software packages were around, and it was done against a backdrop of knowledge at the time, where even there wasn't that much known about bat echolocation, for example, in some respects. So, so yeah. we're now we've now got we've now got the technology, I suppose, to be able to do things that somebody, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago didn't have the ability to look at or listen to in the same way. And how do you think um, acoustic identification will be uh, incorporated into ecological survey methods going forward? Yeah, I, I think that will be dependent upon the species. I think for some species groups, I would say that it should definitely be there. Okay, so hazel dormouse, for example, uh, and if you schedule one species, you know, otter, you know, is the classic example. Um, you've now got uh, manufacturers producing uh, static bat detectors that are capable of recording audible sound long-term. So mm. acting in a similar way to a bat detector, but for audible sound. 
Uh, you now have bat detectors that are able to record audible sound or be switched from one mode to another mode. So the excuse for not doing it um, isn't really there anymore. Would I suggest it gets done in absolutely every you know ecology survey? No, I wouldn't. But if you're trying to prove presence or absence of certain uh, important species or invasive species, perhaps from an invasive point of view as well, then I think it would be it would be bonkers not to utilize uh, some sort of acoustic method within your survey approach. Because what you've got to bear in mind here, and it's very easy for likes of myself and Stuart and Humor to talk about this from the perspective of the bat world. But there are many people out there that might be studying or researching mammals that don't necessarily have the benefit of the bat world experience. Um, you're able with this static recording device to leave it in the field for argument's sake, you know, recording 24 hours a day for 14 days on the trot or longer if you want. And that's something that a human would never do. Um, so to me, it opens up uh, the opportunity to survey at times when humans wouldn't normally be there, survey over lengths of period that humans wouldn't be capable of. And as humans, when it comes to larger mammals, for example, a lot of what we rely upon is a visual uh, connection with the creature to confirm it's there. But you will often hear something that you don't see. And if you can then use that uh, acoustic connection in the way that you would with a singing songbird in the middle of a woodland that you couldn't see, but you know it's a little warbler because it's a little warbler song, that, that just opens up a whole lot of information, perhaps that wouldn't have been there before. Uh, Stuart, I kind of went into a bit of a presentation there. But I, 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 complete, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I think one one kind of critical part and one one kind of area that I've, I've kind of really focused and I'm I'm interested in is um, it's then you collect a lot. It's easy to collect a lot of data, but then to be able to process it and particularly where um, some of these species, the call rate is quite low. So you, you'd be putting in a huge amount of effort trying to find those odd small mammal calls amongst like hours and hours of data. So I, I kind of work on building algorithms to try and find those calls. And um, it's obviously an on ongoing project trying to improve the classifiers the whole time. But it, I think those, those tools are really needed to find find where the mammal calls are, and then you can um, then you can look at them. If you're manually looking at everything, it'd be it'd be too difficult. Um, so before the book came out, I was really keen. I've worked on small mammals and built those into my back classifiers. I wanted to work on add some audible species in. So I've built in edible dormice as a classifier. Um, but my kind of aim is to try and collect more deer recordings, more otter recordings, and uh, kind of add those as options as well to make it easier for people to find find the otter calls and their recordings, to find the deer, to find whatever species they're interested in. Mm. But, yeah, I kind of think that's, that's quite important. So... The the book comes with access to a, a sound library of calls. Could you tell us a bit more about what's in the sound library and how someone would use it in, in conjunction with the book? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think what, what I find having done 
I think this is now the fourth book I've done that's got a sound library. Um, people won't necessarily appreciate the amount of time it takes to write a book, okay, and to do the research to put a book together. But for a book such as this, when we've got such an extensive sound library, such a huge part of the writing process is actually deciding which sounds to include in the library, cataloguing them correctly, trying to make sure that there's nothing in any of the recordings, like somebody speaking or stuff like that that could potentially embarrass somebody. Um, checking that stuff like, uh, you know, information, um, metadata, whatever you want to call it, you know, that might say exactly where a recording was recorded, isn't there, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, what's in the sound library? Broadly speaking, uh, every chapter that then goes through each species one at a time, within each of those species accounts, there is usually a sound file that links to the spectrogram on the page in the book. Okay. Now, there are one or two exceptions, maybe a handful of exceptions where there isn't a sound file to go with the spectrogram. But I've lost count of how many sound files are in this book, to be honest, Nigel. I think, I think we're approaching 300 or maybe just over 300 sound files. Yeah, several hundred. And, sorry, how many have I got? It's several hundred, I should have. Several hundred, yeah. Um, and I think it would be difficult in this day and age to do a book such as this, and the same is true for things like this, that, a bat book, and the social calls books and stuff like that as well. In this day and age, to produce a book on sound identification that doesn't include actual sounds that you can listen to um, would, be, would be a huge, huge omission. And I think the one thing that I've struggled with personally and it's not any of the writer's faults, but when you go into academic material uh, or other written material about stuff that covers some of the things that we've covered here and people are talking about sound or people have shown you know, a spectrogram of a sound thing, there is no way that we were able to then, I wonder what that sounds like. Or I wonder what that looks like if we zoomed out or zoomed in or we adjusted some thresholds and stuff like that. That wasn't there. And that's a shame because when you get things like academic papers talking about sound, the lack of sound files linked to that academic paper, I understand why they're not there, but that is something that makes it very difficult for someone to uh, then learn from. Mm -hmm. which then makes it hugely important as to why we've got a sound library with something like this. Um, Stuart might have some different thoughts on that, of course. Um, yeah. I kind of agree, agree with that. And I know we had a lot of discussion, didn't we? Because pe people describe sounds in, in words yeah. and some of them we just couldn't get, could we? We just oh. thought, what? What? And then you've yeah, got this so... thing, right, here. Yeah. I, and this is I think across a lot of ecology subjects, um, you know, a, a study's been done in a different part of the world, yeah, uh, by people that are accustomed to describing things based on their culture or their language or their way of forming sounds. And then that paper then gets translated 
into English for argument's sake as part of the process, but the person that's doing the translation maybe isn't necessarily the person that's written the original work. So you've then got this, uh, you know, this original person's thought of what a sound sounds like in from their individual cultural country language perspective. You've then got somebody translating that and thinking, well, you know, bark sounds like woof or squeal sounds like whale or whatever. I don't know. And then you think, I mean, I don't know, 20 years later, somebody like myself, Stuart or Huma, is looking at this and thinking, that doesn't sound like that word. <laughs> it's, yeah. I think there's definitely more art than science in trying to use words to describe animal calls. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, and folks, anybody listening to this, um, in some respects, we've used our own words <laughs> to describe some of these sounds. Um, uh, I don't think we'll be offended if anybody decides to swap one of our words with another word that's a better word or a more appropriate word. Uh, it's not like we've come up with the be and all uh, index for describing vocalizations or anything like that. <laughs> One of the useful features uh, in the book is the, the table you've got for each species with um, lists of potential sources of confusion, whether that's other species or other noises. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, okay. But that started off in early life as being a really massive table with lots and lots of stuff on it. And I think it was humour from memory that suggested this is too complicated, we need to make it simpler. And we ended up with these, by comparison, fairly simple tables at the end of uh, each uh, each section, I think. Uh, and I think the challenge there is, for example, um, Stuart, there's a call that you call the, is it the blue tick call? Uh, animal that makes something that sounds like a, a blue tit uh, squeak. I can't it's, remember. It's really it's really annoying if you're if you're interested in it. It's called it's called often called the mouse call of the blue tit, but it sounds like a shrew rather than a mouse. Yeah. But um yeah, for yeah, building classifiers it's really annoying because yeah. it does it visually it looks and it does sound a bit like a, a shrew. Yeah. But yeah it's things like that. They're not even uh, in the same group. So we then have a choice when we get to the end of this, each of those areas where we're talking about potentially confusing stuff. If you take that example, do we then put in a spectrogram of the blue tick call? And do we then put in a sound file of the blue tick call? And that seems very simple to do as a one-off example. But, but you could do that here, there, and everywhere, and the book would be well, it wouldn't be twice as big, but it would be significantly bigger. And there's quite a lot, uh, you know, in the small mammal area where things sound a little bit or look a little bit like bat social calls, for example. Do we then start putting in, you know, pictures of the bat social calls that they look like? And I suppose there came a point where we had to draw a line. We had to alert people to the fact that these things, these you know, lookalikes, soundalikes uh, exist. But, you know, there are other places to find that information. I think was the overall decision 
that was taken rather than extend each chapter by another two or three pages. I think I find it really satisfying now seeing that, um, I think since your Is That About book came out, you're getting back people commenting on back record um, on recordings yeah. and quite often they include because rats are brown rats are recorded very commonly shrews are recorded commonly wood mice are recorded quite commonly um you're getting people now suggesting oh i think that's a brown rat and you, you yeah. know that came from came from you know where that came from yeah but but yeah. and again without let's not pick ourselves up too much here stuart but okay. For four, four, five years ago, if somebody yeah. put up on one of those uh, Facebook pages something like a, a brown rat call, okay, uh, you know, no. the, ch- the chances are that it would have probably been you, it might have been me, but it have, it's like people are maybe only, we weren't the only people, but it was just like, when somebody like yourself then said, I think this is a brown rat, you could almost hear the shock and horror reverberate through the Facebook page. Now, whereas, whereas now, and it's only kind of, what, three, four, five years later, uh, in part because of this, is that a bad book as well? I'm finding I very rarely need to respond to any of these posts now because the, the community is basically, they're working it out themselves. Uh, are you finding that, Stuart, that you're responding? Yeah. Or, or more and more when you do respond, you actually find you're not the first person to respond. Someone else yeah. has got in first. Uh, yeah. I think this book is going to really, really help. Particularly, I think it goes into a lot more detail. And, well, shrews, for example, yeah, uh, covering shrews. In, in, yeah, I think it's going to really help knowledge more generally. Um but I'm finding people are uploading small mammal recordings from other parts of Europe. And I know it's a shrew. I can't say it's that particular species, but straight away um, people know it's a shrew. And then hopefully they're kind of thinking, okay, what potentially, what can we do? What can we do with this? What what impact do you think that um, acoustic ID will have on, on distribution records uh, over the next, I don't know, 10 years or so, especially for rarer species? I kind of look at, for example, if I look at the records that have been uploaded to the the pipeline, and that's that's one one area where people are uploading mainly bat recordings. There's 30, 30 million. I was kind of looking at this recently. 130 million bat identifications, uh, 500 ter- through processing 500 terabytes of recordings. There's 30 million small mammal IDs. They're not necessarily all correct and. What I'd need to do is pull back a copy of those and carry out a process of like manual manual kind of auditing of those to try and um, kind of deal with any mis- misidentifications. But straight away, you can see there's a huge, huge volume of data. The, the, the important thing is getting from where we are now to producing validated records um, and building better processes for doing that. But I think... I think the the volume of data that can be produced is is really immense when you've got an understanding of what a species can do in terms of its calls. And, and what species do you think might be significantly underestimated in terms of ranges at the moment that acoustic ID will perhaps um, help improve in terms of range information? So I think there's some really easy wins in terms of um, species which which are 
very vocal and particularly species that produce low frequency calls where uh, when you get some, something producing low frequency, the calls carry, a f carry further through air, so are detected further away. So to give an example, something like um, azor dormice, you can detect up to, I guess about like nine meters, 10 meters, for example, whereas wood mice are really vocal, but you have to have a microphone within about, well, certainly under two meters to detect them. So there's kind of differences there. So I think the easy wins are things like dormice, for example, uh, edible dormice are, are audible, most of the calls and hazel mice produce ultrasonic calls, shrews particularly. And I think the really good thing about uh, being able to identify shrews is uh, if you're live trapping, which is the, the other common way of monitoring shrews, there can quite often be high mortality unless you're putting a lot of effort into check, checking your traps really, really regularly. Uh, and I think acoustics offer, offers an, a kind of alternative kind of methodology, particularly if you're using longworth traps that have got a shrew hole where the shrews can get out and you can be catching other, other things which are less prone to kind of mortality if you're catching them. So I think there's a kind of whole, whole kind of big area there. Um, I think quite a few of the, these things we discussed in the book, don't we, don't we, Neil? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, most of the sections or chapters have uh, an area where we we talk about opportunities for uh, you know future uh, monitoring or adopting certain approaches, uh, and that works really well. Um, and I think Stuart, just to take you back to what you were talking there about the the figures from memory, you had a hundred million plus uh, you know recordings, and within there, thirty million potentially non bat mammal recordings. I think the thing. To also bear in mind there is that the bulk of that will have been generated by people putting out bat detectors looking for bats and the 30 million as Stuart always describes it is is a bycatch um now it's not going to be easy to focus on a specific species of purely terrestrial mammal but if you're setting up a recording device in favour of recording a particular species of land-based terrestrial mammal, um, then th those numbers would probably be even greater than the percentage ratio of what Stuart's got. But then what then happens, without wanting to melt anybody's brain here, but you end up with people that are out trying to acquire uh, deer recordings or dormice recordings or mustelid recordings, what are they getting as bycatch? They're then getting bat recordings as bycatch. And then the whole thing then flips around the other way as well, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Any thoughts on that, Stuart? I mean, so yeah. So uh so the approach I've taken, my my main interest is probably bats, bat sound identification, but I, I think it's a real opportunity and I got into identifying um small mammals as bycatch. But I think the same thing's true for the audible range. People recording birds, a lot of people put out acoustic recorders to uh, particularly people interested in nocturnal flight calls or migrants. That that data will also contain deer recordings. It will potentially contain, if you're in the right area, like uh, edible dormice, uh, potentially mustelids, although they produce 
low frequency and high frequency. So if, if, you, if we could develop the tools to then find those, find those calls easily to make it easier for people to then kind of focus in on those, I think there's kind of huge opportunities that um, but that's, that's not really being done at the moment, is it, Neil? Um, well, not that I'm aware of. I, and if, if it is, I don't think it's anywhere near at the level that it's getting done for bats and associated bycatch, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. I think, I think my challenge is um, to build to build good algorithms to identify these things. I need hundreds and hundreds of examples. So for the book, we've collected a lot, uh, a lot of recordings to try and understand the range of calls. But I haven't got. I need ideally, I'd need thousands of munchak recordings, thousands of fallow deer. Uh, it's really kind of data hungry, so I need a lot more effort really to try and collect those. One thing I just want to add here, Nigel, because I think we're giving the impression that uh, all of the recordings that are in the book, uh, myself, Stuart and Huma acquired ourselves, okay? And that definitely was not the case. Uh, as acknowledged in, at the beginning of the book, this book would not have been possible without a huge number of contributions by lots of amazing people who shared uh, their data uh, you know, and the recordings with ourselves. So as much as uh, we had a lot of experience ourselves in trying to collect uh, recordings for certain things at certain points in the book, there's a lot of areas in the book that if we had to do ourselves, it would have probably taken us another two, three years to gather the information that uh, people very kindly had shared with us. So that's allowed the book to get... Uh, published more quickly than might have been the case, but it's also allowed us to include a lot of people uh, in in the project. And so it's not just about me, Stuart, and Huma. Uh, it's about, I don't know, there's probably a hundred names in that acknowledgement of people. There's two full pages of acknowledgements, which is, uh, yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. If anybody's out there, if you're one of these people, uh, myself, Stuart, and Huma, massive, massive thank you to you all. Uh, yeah, there are kind of definitely species we struggled with there, weren't there, where yeah. where we didn't collect any recordings ourselves, I think. Yeah. What's the most difficult species, or what was the most difficult species to get recordings of? And I guess why? Is it rarity or doesn't doesn't make a lot of sound? I'm, I'm going to tease Stuart up nicely for this, all right? Uh, but before I do it, uh, the one that the one that I would add, which humour would definitely want to talk about, was a rabbit. All right, that was that was horrendously difficult, despite an awful lot of effort by humour and people that uh, humour had uh, trying to help her with that. But I think Stuart, you're probably going to go for mole, maybe. Oh yeah. Yeah, do you so want to talk we, about it? <laughs> yeah, we had a few mini projects, didn't we, to try and get recordings. And quite a lot of the time it worked, didn't it? We got no. like various things. Uh my my efforts to try and get mole recordings didn't really, I think it's fair to say. Um, but I went to quite long lengths. I built um so I've got moles in my garden. I thought, how how difficult can this be? I I I built loads of pipes which went into the ground that I could put along the the tunnels, the tunnels of the moles. And I put kind of a whole load of these across the garden 
where I could then sync a microphone into it from the top uh, to try and get recordings. And I had my whole garden just like covered in these kind of pipes and uh, microphones sunk into the ground. Didn't record a single one. I think I may have recorded something going along one of these tunnels, just walking along. Um, yeah, so a lot of effort, didn't get any recordings. But again, you kind of mentioned people acknowledgements. There was one guy, I don't know if you want to say, Neil, yeah, yeah, but 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 what what one one guy he wrote to us and he just just said, Oh, I see you doing this book. Uh but by any chance do you want uh a more recording that I've got? And it was kind of like, What? <laughs> it's like the only person I'd ever written to us with a more recording. And uh they'd been out doing something else, uh, and they'd stumbled across this wall above ground making a hell of a racket and they'd had the they had the common sense to actually record it then and there and then having got that recording they then emailed us and offered to share it with us and that had it not been for that single recording I think Mole I think that's the only thing we've got of Mole that's actually somebody can listen to um, so I'm not going to mention the name here, but if people go to that section of the book and they look up eh, the more recording, the person's acknowledged there. Okay, so you know who you are. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> what what species had um, I did the most diverse or surprising range of calls? I think of the audible stuff, probably things like badger, red fox, maybe had quite a lot. For the ultrasonic stuff, Stuart, what would you put in there as being the most diverse? Um... Um, I think in terms of the the broadest range of types of call, probably hazel dormice. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's some things that look look almost like uh, horseshoe bat calls, yeah. um, and others which look completely different. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe hazel dormice, um, yeah. but yeah, there is. Small mammals, there's quite a lot of variation generally, isn't there? Particularly mice. And and I think the thing is, if somebody said to me 10 years ago, what sound does a mouse make? I would have just gone squeak. <laughs> but, but, no, you know, even, even just, I mean, we've got, we've got a section, I think, on, I think it's house mouse from memory, where not from our own research, but from other people's research, we've given uh, drawings of... Uh, different types of uh, call that are known to come from that species. And again, quite diverse, uh, very, very different sounds coming from the same species. And what does it all mean? You know, in, in some respects, people know what some of it means. But yeah. for many species, in many respects, we're not there yet. No, it's yeah, well, just to take just to take the badger, which I've I've got open on this page. You've got um, barking, hissing, growling, snarling, keckering, yeah. snorts, yelps, screams, grunts, purrs, chirs, and my favourite, chittering. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, this is incredible diversity of of behaviour. Yeah, they're able to capture um, through the sound recordings. Yeah, yeah, I think the big gap for a lot of these is understanding like what they relate to. And we've, we've tried to add a bit, haven't we, where, where we know, but a lot that we don't know really on that. Yeah, and I think in that context, the book is very much, uh, as the title says, it's an identification 
book primarily and how to go about uh, doing this kind of work yourself, you know, how to go about setting up equipment, survey methods, that kind of stuff. We say in the in the in the preface uh, and in, within chapter one, this is not about behavioural context. It's not about us trying to assign every call to a behaviour. There are some places, some areas where either we ourselves or through looking at work that other people have done, we've been able to say that this is distress, this is aggression, this is meeting advertisement, for example. But but by and large, especially for the small terrestrial mammals, we haven't gone there yet because other than brown rats and house mouse, really, um, there hasn't really been that much done on all the other stuff. I think is that a book because the first time that, for example, harvest mice, you'd think people would be really interested in harvest mice, but nothing had been written, I don't think, before yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was certainly a shocker to me when I was when I was seeing those yeah. calls for the first time on the software. I yeah. was just like you know, I remember I phoned up Keith Keith French and I said, You won't believe this. And I'm telling her, and Keith and Keith was saying, Everybody's gonna hate you, Neil. Everyone's gonna hate you because you've just you've just gonna make this so much more complicated now, you know? And I was just pacing up and down in this hotel room in Gatwick going, there must have been a bat. There must have been a bat inside <laughs> that building where these mice were, you know. But there yeah. couldn't have been. I couldn't have. It was the mice. You you do a great job in the book of introducing recording equipment um, and the the physical properties of calls. What would you say to someone who's potentially a bit daunted by equipment and terminology around sound recording? By the book. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, it's not it, It's not too difficult. It depends whether you're going into the ultrasonic stuff or the audible stuff. Um, but get yourself a fairly decent full-spectrum bat detector. It doesn't need to be hugely expensive. I mean, there are full-spectrum detectors out there that you can get for two, three hundred pounds, for argument's sake. And do things like read that chapter or the the areas of the book that talks about how to go about this, because we have tried to put it across in a way that if someone had no knowledge, this is giving them a starting point from which they can uh, develop from. But I wouldn't be afraid of it. I would just get out there and record stuff and then listen to it or put it through software and just get accustomed to how the software works, how the equipment works. And don't give yourself a hard time if you're recording lots of stuff and you don't have a clue what it is. You know, uh, just, just begin to build up your experience and begin to ask questions and begin to slowly and carefully, you know, learn, okay, that's, I now know what a brown rat is, you know, for argument's sake. I now know what a hazel dormouse is, for argument's sake. Um, I think that's what I would do. And, and it's kind of easy for me to relate to that, because when I started in bats, and we were all out there with heterodyne bat detectors, and 
not really using software at all at that stage. We were pretty much all out there on our own without the benefit of the internet and social media and books like this, just having to kind of fumble our way through it ourselves to begin with. And don't be put off by that. That's just part of the learning progress and you're going to make mistakes, but take advice from other people. For goodness sake, send myself, Stuart or Humor, an email if you're thinking about buying a bit of kit and you know, we'll, we'll give you advice, I'm quite sure. Uh, talk to somebody in the bat world that uses ultrasonic recording kit, in other words, a bat detector. They might be able to give you advice. Stuart, please, there must be more to it than what I've just said there. What's, what's your perspective? That's a really good summary. I think, I think the only I think the really good thing about full spectrum, when you get a recording, you've then got something you can share with other people who perhaps have got have got greater knowledge. And there's, there's obviously us, but there's also various places, for example, for bat sound identification, people often post small mammal recordings there and they'll get kind of feedback quite quickly on what people think it is. So, uh, yeah, I think... It's much I think it's much easier than it used to be, definitely. And you've got you've got a record that you can share with people. I think that's the important the important thing. Um and yeah, it's a kind of good good way of learning, getting feedback from other people. Yeah. And if it's an audible sound, okay, if it's an audible sound, just switch on your phone, yeah, your mobile phone, just go to video mode and then just it doesn't matter that you're not videoing what's making the sound, but the video mode will record sound as well and and send it to somebody. You know? <laughs> uh, you know, if it's within the office or within your club or your research crew or whatever, uh, you've heard something, I don't know what it is, video function on your mobile phone. Yeah, I heard this sound last night. Does anybody know what it is? You know, and can, can people get started with, um, a trail camera, if the trail camera has sound recording feature. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the recordings were used, weren't they? Were made on trail cameras, yeah. then converted to WAV files. Yeah, absolutely. The difficulty is with the trail camera approach is it's motion that triggers the trail camera. So unless something has motion triggered the camera in the first place, you're not going to record any sound. So a trail camera isn't going to record a sound from a distance uh, unless it's got some kind of sound trigger on it. And trail cameras, as far as I'm aware, all the normal trail cameras anyway, are very much uh, motion uh, triggered as opposed to sound triggered. But once they're triggered, uh, as, you're, as you're saying, uh, they record sound as well during that uh, point in time, yeah. You could potentially see that being incorporated into sound, into into cameras, trail cameras in the yeah. future, because the the microphones there would simply be it would be a software um, function, I guess, to trigger recording. Yeah, I think for the low frequency that's fine, but I think perhaps there could be uh, development to include the ultrasonic range as well, because um, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities for combining camp like trail camera type data and acoustics together. And, yeah. and I think particularly if you're working in areas where you haven't got a reference library of recordings or you haven't got a book like this to hopefully help people, um, if you're working in other parts of the world, combining that kind of 
cam trail camera data with a it could be really useful um and you can get an idea of what different species are producing and uh, and apply it elsewhere so uh, a, a camera device with a recording capabilities and perhaps also a sort of temperature humidity and light sensor built in would be uh would be marvelous i the technology seems to have moved be moving very quickly in terms of the uh both what the what devices can do but also the costs seem to be coming down um making everything a lot more accessible yeah so yeah so it's a, it's a camera that's got a sound trigger on it as well as a visual trigger mm. or a bat detector that's got a camera built into it. the technology is definitely there because the two things the two things exist independently, do they? So it's just a case of creating something that's a hybrid of the two, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. And it may be longer term, you're combining the analysis of the two types of data together. Um, so rather than just like acoustic analysis or just camera, kind of trail camera, you're combining the two to use both information together to, to infer is that what species is present there? Yeah. Yeah. And when's the when's the sort of um, busiest time of the year for most species? Is it around mating seasons, or are there are there is there not much difference in terms of how much um, vocalization is going on at different times of year? Right, so what we've tried to do uh, within each of the species accounts, we've tried to give a very brief, uh, wider context note on things like a uh, time of day or time of year to expect certain types of activity. But I, I would say, as is the case with most things in our part of the world, uh, spring is probably uh, you know, a hot time of year for uh, recording this stuff. And the bleak or uh, times of the year when uh, young are born and or young begin to become more mobile, perhaps, and that could be different for, for, for different species. And of course, you've got things like deer rutting. Um, even within the context of deer, different deer will uh, rut at slightly different times uh, of the year. Uh, so some months might be slightly better for uh, one species as opposed to another species, for argument's sake. But we do try and give a bit of guidance on that within each of the species accounts. But the place to go for uh, more specific information would probably be other resources. So if your particular interest is a species of mouse or shrew or a species of uh, deer, then, you know, you kind of research that species. It's, you know, what its typical uh, seasonal behaviours are and then focus your attention, I suppose, accordingly. Um, so a very generic answer there. Uh, Stuart, you got, any, you got anything? To got add any, to that? Anything clever to add to that? I think that was, that was a really good, really good summary. And as you say, things are just, it, yeah, within deer, you've got things like um, road, is it road deer that have their rutting in July, but then completely extreme things like Chinese water deer, uh, December, January time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So really different, really different between species. So um, people are going to be getting out recording at all times of the year. Yeah, potentially. And small mammals, I'm recording any any time of year, really. Um, but I'm sure there's peaks again. 
uh, apart from dormice, which, uh, yeah, you're not really recording in the winter. And I suppose my daily point of view as well, I think typically uh, there's an awful lot of mammal activity round about dusk into the early hours of darkness. Uh, and again, round about, you know, round about dawn, uh, for some mammals, there's an awful lot of activity at those times of a typical day. Uh, for some of your small terrestrial mammals, uh, they're very much active at night. Uh, but then you get other small terrestrial mammals that are active throughout the day. So, for example, uh, shrews can be active, I think, any time of day or night. Yeah, it's uh, really important to understand, isn't it? If you're interested in shrews, you're going to get more data if you record over the day and night. Uh, whereas things like wood mice, you'll only record, you won't record during the day. Uh, and then things like brown rat, they've got really big peaks at dusk and early in the morning and fewer calls at other times. So, yeah, it's really, really variable. And hazel dormice, we're finding, don't, there's kind of in, don't really call after dusk, but then two hours after, like when it's really dark, two hours after dusk, that's their kind of peak time for calling. So understanding that, if you're wanting to carry out surveys, um, let's say you're out in the field, you don't want to wait for it to start to get dark to survey hazel dormice because they're not really vocal until a couple of hours later, until into the night. So really kind of understanding that. We tried to get as much in the book as possible, haven't we? Um, but as you say, there's, yeah, there'll be a kind of other resources that uh, hopefully we've linked to quite a few of those for additional information. Well, that's all of all of my questions. Thanks very much, and and thank you again to both of you and to and to Huma for all your work on this uh, marvelous book. Thanks for inviting us for the interview, Nigel. It's uh, greatly appreciated, and thanks for uh, you know to be fair, folks. Um, now this book kind of came from uh, Nigel's. Uh, thought process he was the one that kind of kicked off the process he phoned us up and said hey do you fancy writing a book so brilliant idea Nigel <laughs> good on you so thanks. I think you were you were you were you'd already written about the topic I think at the time and yeah. you'd obviously gathered a lot of material so I, I didn't have to twist your arm too hard I don't think what was your no, first you didn't, you didn't have to twist my arm too hard at all, to be honest. What, what was your first response, Neil? <laughs> Were you keen? Let's not go into that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, Stuart, do you want to close things off? Uh, I have just said. No, no just to, to thank you for the invite to, to talk today. No, I've enjoyed it. And um, yeah, it's been good fun working on this.